Well, good morning. You know, I'm willing to admit that it took me three verses of that last song before I figured out what part I was supposed to be singing. I've got it now. I've got it now. So if we sing it again next week, I'll still be with it. But I saw the men and women thing in the parentheses and, uh, well, that's just part of the battle, I guess. Let's take our Bibles and let's turn to the Gospel of Mark. We have been in the Gospel of Mark for, well, we were there six weeks in a row, except for the last three weeks. But this morning we're back, and in a few minutes we're going to look at a specific paragraph from Mark chapter 7. But since it's been three weeks, or maybe it's been four weeks, I'm not sure how I count those weeks. Before we get to Mark chapter 7, let's do what we usually do. Let's go back and do a a brief review of what we've studied to this point. Now, our goal here is to work our way through the Gospel of Mark at the pace of a chapter a week. And there's no way we can look at a whole chapter. There's just no way not to do any justice to it. So what we've What I've chosen to do is look at one paragraph from each chapter, and then what we've done for the last six weeks that we've been in Mark, we've identified a a particular paragraph, and then we've given the chapter a name. Mostly that name is based on what we discovered in that paragraph, but it it gives us kind of a, well, I'm hoping it gives us a helpful way to remember what we studied in each chapter. So let's go back to chapter one. In chapter one, Jesus invited his first disciples to uh, come and follow him. So we named, as we give these names, we named chapter 1, Come and Follow Me. Turn the page, go to Mark chapter 2. In chapter 2, Jesus healed a man who was paralyzed, as well as forgiving the man of his sin. In verse 9 of chapter 2, Jesus commands the man to stand up and walk. And I remember we spent some significant time on this. Why? The, the question is, why does Jesus have the man stand up and walk? Uh, do you think there's a moment, even a moment in the mind of Jesus, that he's, he's wondering if the guy is really healed? Well, not at all. Jesus knows the man is healed. Jesus knows that the paralyzed man is no longer paralyzed. But he has the man stand up and walk. First of all, he forgives him of his sin, and then he says, stand up and walk. He has the man stand up and walk so that everybody in Capernaum can see that when Jesus changes somebody on the inside, it makes a difference how we look and act on the outside. If there's no change on the outside, if people profess to have faith in Jesus Christ, but there's no change on the outside, People have every right to assume there never was really a change on the inside. It was just talk. So we name chapter 2, the outside always reflects the inside. Turn the page, go to chapter 3. In chapter 3, Jesus heals a man with a crippled hand. And because the healing takes place on the Sabbath, and we run into this time and time again as we work our way through any of the Gospels, because the healing takes place on a Sabbath, The Pharisees get upset. I've often wondered as I've worked my way reading through and studying through the Gospels, why doesn't Jesus just just relax a minute and, and heal the guy on the next day? Why does he always do this on a Sabbath? Can't this wait? This guy's been 
paralyzed or crippled hand for years. Can't he wait just one more day? The Pharisees would kind of back off and, no, that's not the way Jesus operates. He heals the man on the Sabbath because he wants the Pharisees to understand and he wants me to understand and he wants all of us to understand that people are more important than man-made rules. So we name chapter 3, having a heart for people who need Jesus. Turn the page, go to chapter 4. We discovered that in the four kinds of soil, every seed does not sprout and grow. So we name chapter 4, everyone does not go to heaven. Now, for some, some people, that is, are you kidding me? Well, there's just people, and, in, in, uh, you know, I deal with that, you deal with that, you listen to the radio, you read newspaper articles, you watch television, it's like everybody dies and everybody goes to heaven. Well, that's not even, no, it doesn't work that way. Everyone is not going to heaven. Turn the page, go to Mark chapter 5. In chapter 5, we read the story of the demon-possessed man who lived in the cemetery. Let me say that again. We read the story of the demon-possessed man who lived in the cemetery. Now, if we had the time to go around the room, we could share. I'll bet most people could stand up and share, tell a little story about what is the, one of the strangest places you ever lived, the strangest apartment, the strangest house, the strangest neighborhood. But I don't care... Who tells what story? Nobody lives in the cemetery. Mark chapter 5 is the story of a demon-possessed man who lives in the cemetery. And we came to understand that even though God is in absolute control over demonic activity, and true believers can never be demon-possessed, we can, however, be significantly influenced by all the satanic activity occurring around us. So we named chapter 5, demonic activity is a real thing. And I remember I shared a story from my life of one time when I ran into a situation like that. Turn the page, go to Mark chapter 6. In chapter 6 we realize, we realize that Jesus cares about not only our spiritual needs, he cares about our physical needs as well. So in Mark chapter 6, we have to ask ourselves this question. Who but Jesus could take just a small handful of fish and a few pieces of bread and multiply that so that it would be enough food to feed 20,000 people or more? There's nobody but Jesus that could do that. And he did that as a way to demonstrate that he does care about our physical needs. We, we sometimes, we think when we pray, we just have to pray about spiritual needs. But, but I'm glad at Crosspoint here, we, we pray about spiritual needs. We also pray about physical needs. Well, that's exactly what Jesus did. He performs a miracle. And as we work our way through the Gospels, he does this time and time again. He does things that nobody else can do. We name chapter 6, Jesus specializes in miracles. Turn the page. Go to Mark chapter 7. I'm going to read the first eight verses, so you're welcome to follow along, either in your Bible or you can follow along up on the screen. This morning I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. 
So let's just remind ourselves that what we're reading here is the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. Verse 1, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they, come from, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Let's just pray just for a moment. Dear God, we ask that you would just open this passage up to us, that you would teach us what you want us to know and understand and apply to our life. Lord, I just ask that all of us would, for the moment, just forget about everything we think we're going to do this afternoon and focus our attention on Mark chapter 7. God, that when we leave here today, we would all understand or at least have a better understanding of what you want us to know from this paragraph. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, I will admit, Mark chapter 7, that first paragraph, that is confusing. I mean, what in the world are we even talking about here? So Jesus and the disciples come to the city of Capernaum and the Pharisees, as they do many times, are all shook up. And they're, they're pointing fingers at Jesus and the disciples and they're basically saying, why don't you wash your hands before you eat? That's a great question. And Jesus says, you know, Isaiah was right, right when he prophesied about you guys. And he's pointing his fingers back at the Pharisees. He said, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. So let's see if we can just go back. Let's take a step back. Because I took a step back this week and went back and did some research to try and figure out what we're talking about here. We need to go back in time. We need to go back to about the year 400 B.C. So just sort of travel back with me now. We are 400 or maybe 500 years before Jesus was even born. Jewish people began to create what are called oral laws. They created these hundreds, perhaps thousands of oral laws, oral laws, not written laws, but oral laws, as a way to help them understand the laws of Moses. Now, from the bottom of my heart, I believe the Jewish people who were in charge of this, I believe to this day what started out as a good thing. I believe these Jewish people really were trying to do the right thing. I mean, here we have 613 laws from Moses, some of them are easy to understand, but what about the ones that are not easy to understand? 
And so I, I can't help but believe, in, from the bottom of my heart, I believe that the Pharisees or whoever was involved in doing this, they would take some of these, what we could call complicated laws that are difficult to understand. We can't even understand them. How can we apply them to our life? So they began to break down these complicated laws into little pieces. And so the thinking is, if we could understand each little piece, eventually we'd understand what that particular law was intended to be. Remember, that's 400, 500 B.C. 600 years later, in other words, 100 or 200 years after Jesus was here, they took all those oral laws and they wrote them down in a book that's called, and you may be familiar with this word. In fact, I would guess most of us have heard this word, but we're not quite sure what it is. It's the Mishnah. That's a Jewish book. That's a Jewish book that compiles all those years and years and years of oral laws, they put it into writing. Now remember, it's my opinion that what started out as a good thing, well, the wheels fell off. And they started writing so many smaller little oral laws or teaching people little pieces of the law that it got all cloudy and complicated and, and nobody really could understand what the law was intended to do. There were so many inconsistencies. L let me give you a couple examples of what these oral laws are. In an effort to keep the Sabbath from being dishonored because people appeared to be working, remember the law, you shall not work on the Sabbath, okay? as a way to attempt to help people understand how do we do that, these devout Jews created an incredible list of what I call our prohibitions, things they could not do on the Sabbath. For example, one of those is, and let's remember this next Sunday morning, they said that it was against the law to look in a mirror on the Sabbath. Okay? You can look in the mirror all week long, but not on the Sabbath. Now, why would that be? And the answer is because if you looked in the mirror on the Sabbath, and if you're old like me and you happen to see a gray hair, and you didn't want that, that, I wish I only had one, if you didn't want that gray hair and you wanted to pull it out, that was considered work. You were not allowed to work on the Sabbath. So you couldn't look in the mirror on the Sabbath because if you saw a gray hair, you wanted to pull that out and you would be breaking the Sabbath. See how we go from helping people understand that we're not supposed to work on Sunday, but now it gets ridiculous. In, in my idea, it gets ridiculous how it gets all cloudy. Here's another thing. You could not wear... Is wear even the right word? You could not have false teeth in your mouth on the Sabbath. Now, when I first read that, I thought, false teeth? 400 B.C.? But there was such a thing. They... Apparently, the Egyptians had that. They figured out a way to put artificial teeth in your mouth if you didn't have teeth. You could wear false teeth all week long, but you could not wear false teeth on the Sabbath. You know why? Because if your false teeth fell out of the mouth, it was work to bend over and pick up the false teeth, and you were not allowed to work on the Sabbath. So nobody wears false teeth on the Sabbath. You could not carry a package on the Sabbath because carrying a package would be work and you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. It says in Exodus chapter 20, which is where we get the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 beginning in verse 8 says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Nobody works on the Sabbath. The Mishnah says you cannot carry a handkerchief on the Sabbath because you're not allowed to carry anything. You could wear a handkerchief, tie it around your wrist or tie it around. You could wear a handkerchief, but you couldn't carry the handkerchief. So if you were upstairs and there was a handkerchief on the table and you wanted to bring the handkerchief downstairs, you had to tie the handkerchief around your neck, then you could walk down the stairs, you could untie it and set it on the table. It goes from extreme to almost ridiculous. In their attempt to help people interpret the law, and in their attempt to help people apply the law to their lives, the Pharisees had made a mockery of the very law they're trying to interpret. Now there's a humorous story, true, there's a humorous story about among rabbis, it goes like this. If a man with a wooden leg lives in a house that catches fire on the Sabbath, can he carry his wooden leg out of the, out of the house on the Sabbath, or does he need to leave his wooden leg behind? Rabbis talk about it, those kind of things between themselves. Now, all those rules of the Sabbath, I want you to understand, that's not the Mishnah. All those rules of the Sabbath are only one portion of what we have today called the Mishnah. The biggest concern, and here we're going to get to Mark chapter 7, the biggest concern of all these oral laws and the Mishnah, which by the way, the Mishnah is 186 pages of rules and regulations that make little or no sense to most people. But the biggest concern in the Mishnah is what does it mean to be clean? What does it mean to be clean and what right do the Pharisees have to point their fingers at Jesus and his disciples and say, you cannot eat until you wash your hands? And that brings us from Mark chapter 7 to Exodus 30. Here's where we get our first set of rules about keeping clean. Exodus 30, the Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, and with Aaron and his, which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, and when they come near the altar to minister, to burn food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. Now even though these, what are we going to call these? Let's call them ritual washings. Even though these ritual washings that are being described in Exodus chapter 3, even though these were first intended for the rabbis only, Devout Jews all began to practice these ritual washings. It, it, became, it became a way that they could practice in search of being more righteous than they felt they already were. Now, look at what it means to be clean. And let's look at two more verses from Mark 7. Beginning in verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. Holding to the tradition of the elders... 
And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now picture Jesus as he's traveling throughout Galilee. He observed, and you and I would have observed the same thing, these Jewish people are always washing their hands. They're always washing their hands because they want to be sure that they're clean. Before every meal, and now here's how a Jewish person would wash their hands, and if you want to do this for the rest of your life, feel free. A Jewish person would hold their hands like this and, and Hopefully, they have a friend who would pour water in their hands, and then they would lift the hands up and allow the water to run over their wrists, and then they'd rub their hands together. But they're still not clean. At least they didn't think they're clean. Then they would put their hands back together. They would have somebody pour water in their hands, and then they would allow the water to run off their fingertips. And they did this every time as a way to wash their hands to make sure that they were clean. Every time they sat down to eat a meal, they had to go through this ritual. It was, it was a way that they felt they could become righteous if their hands were clean. If they were returning from a place like the Empire Mall, they called it a marketplace. If they were returning from the marketplace, they felt that because they were with non-Jewish people, they oh, they're just... They've got to do more than wash their hands. Their, their whole body would be defiled from being with non-Jewish people. So they had to wash themselves. There, there are people who believe that every time they came back from the marketplace, they would actually take a bath, cleanse themselves from head to toe. When it comes to washing dishes, they really got carried away. There are 35 pages in the Mishnah devoted to telling you how to wash your dishes at home. And so we begin to understand that what started out as a good thing, they were pursuing righteousness. They wanted people to understand the law. It turned out to be nothing more than rituals and guidelines. There's actually a story, if we understand how absurd this is. And I, when I say that, I, I mean no, no disrespect to Judaism or to Jewish people who still practice these things. But there's actually a story about a rabbi who one time forgot to wash his hands before he ate his meal, and he was excommunicated from the synagogue. Now, it isn't like he was getting drunk five days a week. It isn't like he ran off with somebody else's wife. Just imagine this. He forgot to wash his hands, so he was excommunicated from the synagogue. There's another story, true story, about a rabbi who was put into prison in the Roman Empire, and every day he was given a ration of water, and he died. He almost died of dehydration because he felt before he could drink the water, he had to wash his hands two times, and he used up all his water washing his hands, and he had nothing left to drink. That's how absurd they took this to the extreme. It's into that kind of world. Now, you and I don't live in that kind of world, but that's the world into which Jesus was born. Today, you and I understand that righteousness is a spiritual condition that is based entirely on our faith in Jesus, and it has nothing to do with our feeble attempts at good works. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verse 28. And if you don't have this verse underlined, I would encourage you to underline Romans 3, 28, which says this, For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. 
We hold that one, oh, that one, not no one. We hold that one is justified by faith. That's what we believe here at Crosspoint. We're justified by faith, not by doing the works of the law. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus is trying to help the Pharisees understand and the, and the scribes and the Pharisees to understand that the true source of cleanliness, cleanliness is being in a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And it has nothing to do with how we wash our hands or even if we wash our hands. So imagine Jesus being gracious and kind and merciful and polite and all those things when the Pharisees point their fingers at him and say, you and the disciples are not washing your hands. And as we read that, I remember the word properly showed up in the translation. You're not washing your hands properly. They, they had to go through this routine, otherwise they believe your hands weren't clean. In fact, there, there are some commentators who will say that that word wash in... in uh, Mark chapter 7 is actually the same word for baptize. It's why we baptize by immersion here. It's a, it isn't just sprinkle a little water on your hands. So look at how Jesus responds when they ask him, wouldn't you almost like to be, we have this saying in our family, you'd like to be a little mouse in the corner when this conversation takes place. Wouldn't you like to be there when they say to Jesus, they ask him why his disciples aren't washing his hands? Verse 6 in Mark 7, and he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now that's where we're at today. That's where you're at today. You need to decide where you're at today. Are we pursuing righteousness through faith in Christ alone? Or are we pursuing righteousness in our feeble attempts at doing good works? Now, if I were to ask for a show of hands, which I'm not going to do, we all know what the right answer is supposed to be. But I'm wondering, what is, what is your answer to that question? I wonder how many of us Sincerely, I wonder how many of us are still doing what the Jewish people were trying to do 2,000 years ago. How many of us, even though we know we're saved by faith alone in Jesus, how many of us have still got this list? Okay? Maybe it's written down, maybe it isn't written down, but we've got things on that list that we think we need to do in order to get God to love us more than he already does which is just a flat-out, bold-faced lie. Because you can't, I'm here to tell you, friends, we can't do anything to get God to love us more than he already does. Because he already loves us with his whole heart. And there's also nothing you can ever do, nothing you can ever do to get God to love you less than he loves you now. Because he already loves you with an everlasting love. But still, even, even saying that we agree with that and hearing that, I'm convinced that people all over the world, people all over South Dakota, people all over Sioux Falls are still have this imaginary list that they come up with of things they're trying to do, which in their minds they say, if I do this, I will be more righteous. No, you won't. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, you are already righteous, and there's no such thing as being more righteous than you were before. More right, uh, I'm trying to think of what the word would be. 
There is no word. You're either righteous or you're not righteous. You, we either have faith in Jesus Christ or we don't. How many of us have created, either in written form or in memory, lists of these rules and regulations that we follow because we truly believe that by following our own rules, we will be more righteous than we are if we don't do these things? How many of us, if Jesus were to walk in the door this morning and point fingers at us, how many of us would he say, you are worshiping me with your lips, but not with your heart? How many of us believe that we, if we come to church, it will make us more righteous? No, it won't. If you never go to church again for the rest of your life and you're already righteous, you will still be already righteous. We don't go to church to become more righteous. We put money in the offering thinking, well, if we put money in the offering, that God's going to smile down and we'll be more righteous than we were before. No, you won't. You're already righteous. How many of us think that if we get baptized, it'll make us more righteous? No, it won't. It won't. Because if we have faith in Jesus Christ, we're already righteous. Let's look at a couple other verses before we close. Acts 13.39. I'm going to give you two verses. Acts 13.39, and both of these are good verses to have underlined in your Bible. Acts 13.39 says, And by him, everyone who believes... Now let's just stop. And by him, everyone who believes... Well, that's me, and I hope that's you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So we've got, we've got this whole long stack. We've got 613 laws of the Moses. I've got my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm freed from all these 613 laws. Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not, if you're not going to underline the whole, if you're not going to underline the whole verse, at least underline the word not. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also, so we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. There are people everywhere, and I've met people everywhere who study God's Word. There are people who read God's Word. There are people who memorize God's Word, and they still don't understand God's grace. They read the Bible. They get in little Bible study groups. They're faithful in church, and they still don't understand God's grace. Jesus wants us to understand that our righteousness is not based on our feeble attempts at doing good things. That is not going to make us righteous. Our righteousness is based only on our faith in Jesus. We come to church, not to, get, not to get saved, but because we already are saved. We put money in the offering, not to get God to smile on us, but because we're saved and we just want to be obedient in doing what God wants us to do. So here's our chapter title for Mark chapter 7. And you can pick your own title, of course, but... Mine is righteousness by faith alone, not by rules. Your assignment for next week, if you choose to accept it, is to read Mark chapter 8, please. Let's close in a word of prayer, and we'll ask the ushers to come and take this morning's offering. Dear Lord, as we 
as we stand here today and we thank you for what was done on the cross and how the blood of Jesus paid the full price for all of our sin. We, we, from the bottom of our hearts, Lord, we believe and we preach and we teach that Jesus paid it all. He is the, the atoning sacrifice. And yet, Lord, Satan wants to work his way into our lives and, and give us doubts and create all these lists and we struggle with these things that we feel we have to do if you're going to love us. And God, we just want to rest in your love and your grace and your mercy and your kindness. And Lord, that's the kind of life that we want to live in our communities and that's the kind of life we want to live in the workplace and that's the kind of life we want to live in our neighborhoods. Not a life of obeying all kinds of rules and structures, but just, God, we just want to enjoy you and the relationship we have with you through faith in your son, Jesus. So, Lord, as we, as we think about, as we think about the, the Jewish people who many years ago, and perhaps even yet today, are still trying to earn salvation by obeying the laws of Moses. Lord, we realize that your word says that nobody is ever capable of obeying all those laws. The law was given not to save us, but to show us our need for a Savior. And so, God, we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you that we can live in grace. We thank you that we can come to you and ask for our sins to be forgiven, and when we do, you will forgive us. God, help us to live lives of grace. Help us to live lives that reflect the love we have for you and the righteousness you've bestowed on our behalf. And Lord, today as we take this offering, we thank you for each gift and giver. We ask that you would help us to continue to be good stewards of all that you entrust into our care. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.